This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Nathan Englander, author of the novel The Ministry of Special Cases and the short story collections for the relief of unbearable urges and what we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank, which was a finalist for the 2013 Pulitzer Prize. His fiction and essays have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The Atlantic Monthly, among other publications. Englander's latest novel, Dinner at the Center of the Earth, is told in seven points of view and focuses on the secret imprisonment of an American who spied for Israel and turned against his adopted country, who is known as Prisoner Z. Other characters include the guard who watches over the prisoner, the general, Israel's controversial leader who is in a coma, the woman who watches over him, and a young Palestinian in Berlin. Dinner at the Center of the Earth probes into the divide between Israelis and Palestinians and the moral ambiguities that haunt the conflict. We began the interview talking about a short story Englander wrote called Sister Hills, which was a precursor for Dinner at the Center of the Earth. Sister Hills takes place in the West Bank and chronicles the story of one woman selling her daughter to a neighbor because she believes the sale, which is symbolic, will save her sickly child's life. But then the buyer keeps the girl as her own, all while debates and death ensue over the settlement's right to exist and grow, and the story examines the boundaries of Jewish law. Over the years, one starts to learn uh, one's ticks versus one's themes. That is, you know, the ticks you have to eradicate from your work, but the themes, that's sort of your brain pan. But uh, one thing that we can go to the last novel, which sparked Sister Hills, Sister Hills is sort of a bridge story between the last novel, Ministry of Special Cases from a decade ago, and the new one, which is Dinner at the Center of the Earth. The title character of the last novel, uh, there was a character named Kaddish, and I was really interested in you know, these weird or beautiful things that are done in, you know, Jewish culture to sort of trick death. So that if, you know, somebody has a heart attack, you know, that means the angel of death is coming for him and he may have just changed his name from Bill. He'll be like, I'm Thaddeus, you know, Thaddeus, you know, P. Lombardi now. And you'd be like, seriously? Like, you know, this idea that you would just, the angel of death is coming for your specific name. And by changing your name, you'll become a different person and sort of unfindable. And that's one of the things, you know, with, uh, sick children. That's, you know, my main character, Kaddish, was a sickly child, and I give him a new name to trick the angel of death, and one tied around death to double trick the angel of death. And that got me, you know, in reading to another idea, which was this notion that if a child uh, was sickly, that you might sell the child for a dollar to your neighbor, in a sense, because the curse, you know, children are innocent. And uh, so this this sort of dark cloud may be over you or your home or just in a way to show that the child is of no value to you as another way to trick death. So that's how that's the core of the Sister Hill story that a mother, you know, makes this contract and sells her child, you know, for basically for a dollar to a friend, you know, as a protection, which, you know, the child grows up into a woman. But uh, the notion is the neighbor comes to sort of make good on that contract and says, uh, you know, I will take this child now. 
But the larger idea is exploring the notion of biblical contracts. I mean, I, I don't need to, it's, it's a very Israeli story is what I was exploring. But, you know, we have it in America now where people love to pick and choose. You know, this idea, if your word is good, your word should be good. If your logic is good, your logic should hold across the board. And if your sort of, you know, biblical ethics hold, they should hold across the board. You know what I'm saying? Our president is currently worried about tearing down statues, but has no problem you know, tearing apart and drilling in national parks. So that is not logical. Those don't agree at all. You know what I'm saying? They show bad faith. So, uh, you know, this, you know, my notion of how the Bible gets used and the idea of, you know, claims of what it would be, notions of greater Israel and territory and, you know, the two-state solution, all of that gets wrapped up into this allegory for me in this story called Sister Hills, which is about the West Bank and occupation and settlement growth. And again, biblical contracts. So how that ties into the new one is that story, like it was my, I've been wanting to write this new novel for 20 years to explore these ideas that torture me and obsess me, you know, and, and really just drive all my thinking about Israel and Palestine and my time there and the future and peace. And uh, when that story, when Sister Hills went into the world, I, I just... It was the strangest experience I think I've had with any story. I mean, I'm used to certain things. I don't like, you know, tied up endings too neatly. And people love to come to me and say, did she live or die? Like, did, did the marriage go on? I say, I don't know. Did the marriage go on for you? Like, then it's on. You know, I, I you know, respect the reader's brain and the forward motion in it. But uh, in this one, people, the readings were so varied and extreme. And based on what the person brought to the story, it ended up functioning like Sister Hills was like a Rorschach test for me. I mean, literally, you know, a right wing you know, person would come to me and say, you know, this is a clear right wing story about why we need, you know, a greater Israel that runs, you know, as far as Baghdad sort of notion. And someone else would be like, this is such an important left wing story to me because it shows clearly how the occupation is wrong and how we have to have two states and how Jerusalem should be an international capital and not even belong to anyone. And then, of course, because I have a lot of Jewish readers, it would often be people reading the opposite of whatever they were, where they'd say, I'm left-wing, and you you've written this right-wing story. I'm right-wing, you've written this left-wing story. And it was that notion of the reader entering into a story. <laughs> like, uh, you know, the whole idea, and I, I get all kooky on this front, but I'm obsessed with shared consciousness and what reading does and what it is to enter into a book. And, you know, this was a gigantical added element to me that, uh, you know, for really, I was waiting for almost 20 years, it's or 17 years to write this novel and finish this novel and put it into the world. And I was looking for something like this, which is Israel and Palestine. It is so loaded. So I wanted them to engage with the ideas and fought so desperately against being didactic. And Sister Hills, for me, ended up being the model of a story that sort of sparks conversation or lets you take, you know, see what you need or maybe push you to see some other things while bringing yourself to it. That's why it has sort of a spiral st structure. It spins and spins and spins. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Nathan Englander, author of the novel Dinner at the Center of the Earth. In this book, it has all these threads and all these time periods, and you have a bunch of characters. You have Prisoner Z, who um, is a Mossad agent who turns on Israel. Um, the guard who guards him. You have the general who's based on Ariel Sharon, and you have Shira who is also a spy, and you have Farid who is a Palestinian who um, gets kind of sucked into the Mossad's plan. 
and you have Ruthie. So you have all these characters and they all have something to do with the conflict in some way. And so you go between some of these people for your chapters and you were saying earlier that you're very interested in where people begin and you began this book in second person and I wanted to ask you about that. I'm really interested in the subconscious and the writing process you know more and more it drives me and again it's not you know Yates and dream journals or things like that I uh, you know I haven't gone that far yet but so many elements of this book sort of just made themselves apparent. And I just was in my office typing, and then it was just Ruthie, this woman who I you know, don't know and never heard of at the side of the general's bed with the general in a coma. You know, I just was typing that, and I was like, oh, my book has begun. And in a strange way, I just heard this woman. I just saw her on the Gaza border with the you know tension building up and the 2014, you know, invasion about to happen. And I just saw her there, you know, at this rented cottage, you know, on the border as everything's about to explode. So I don't know what to tell you, except it was this primal outside of consciousness notion of hearing this woman and seeing her at the border and in this real second person moment that she has uh, before, you know, before she makes herself apparent. It's interesting to talk about second person because we all have so many sides to us. And you have a line in there that says, how can you be so many people at once? And of course, this is interesting because at the center of this is a double agent who has to be many people at once or is many people at once. And I'm just wondering if you can talk about this line. I guess that goes back to, you know, part of this book is about identity. You know, one thing is to be a spy, which is a certain kind of pretending. You know what I'm saying? We're Prisoner Z when he's you know, spying and being out there is being someone else. That's what spies do. But I thought, oh, this is so much like writing in a sense where a book doesn't work unless I can become the people. You know, I also have to become the chairs and the house and the town and the weather. But that notion of becoming someone else, like it can't be a pretending. You know, to convince someone, you know, you have to inhabit that other person, which is why I think we're fascinated with spies or even with, you know, scare artists, you know, any of that notion of people pretending to be other people, you know, back to dual identities. I, I thought even as a Jewish kid in America, like it, it went not only to my writing self, but it went back to my childhood self, whereas someone who grew up religious and walked around with a yarmulke on his head, I was like, there was another notion of pretending, which was back to the resurgence of anti-Semitism in this country and, and uh, racism. I don't know if it's a resurgence. It seems, you know, more people just waking up to it in a different way just a continuation. But none, nonetheless, there was this moment where, which went into the book towards the very end. And I thought, oh my God, that was my first pretending in life to be someone else. That's almost like being a spy, which is where you take your yarmulke off, where you said, I'm going to turn this corner. I can see what's coming ahead of me. And I am going to be in, you know, I'm going to have to fight about, you know, 10 of these local, you know, anti-Semite bully kind of things. And all you do is have to like slip your hand over as if you're, you know, wiping the hair out of your eyes and that yarmulke would go in our pocket. I mean, we would always joke about it. The boys would joke about that move, you know, the hand swiping over the head and the yarmulke has gone. And it's like, oh, I went from Jew to Gentile just like that. And I thought, this is my first shape shifting in life that I can remember is that motion as a kid to just be like, I am not who I am. I am immediately someone else and that it works, you know, or sometimes it works. You can just walk on by. And to me, that's this idea about the multiple people in this book, whether it's spying or, you know, just simple shifts of identity that we all have. 
You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Nathan Englander, author of the novel Dinner at the Center of the Earth. Well, I think what's interesting in this book, too, is is when you think about that concept of how you can be many kinds of people at once, is that it, what do we need to create peace is do we have to have empathy for the other people? And you had some extremists in your book, you know, the general, he would fight for anything. And you talk about this lack of parity in the fighting that they might shoot a farmer, um, the Palestinians might shoot a farmer, and then the Israelis slaughter a village. But the general, as he's sending all these young boys, you know, to, to war and to fight and to die, he finally experiences a loss. And then it becomes personal. Is that what it takes for some extremists? And and some for some extremists, maybe that makes them even more extreme. But it's different than the time when maybe Israel had leaders that were interested in crossing some boundaries to hope for a different future. That's why the general versus having a, you know, I name people, I name Arafat in the book, you know, I'll, I'll name different people from history, Perez. There's different historical figures that are referenced in the book, but... I made the general my own versus having a, you know, Sharon character or anything like that. It's it's my character, you know, that I built. But so I could really hone in on exactly what you're talking about, which is, and again, there's a whole larger thing of Israel and history and you know, post Holocaust and and the idea of you know what I look at in the book is sort of the price of a dead Jew, you know, what it is to have the outsized response. And again, these things, why story, if story is functioning, it better be universal. I mean, there's everything I'm saying here, I want to talk about America now, what it is. I mean, it's terrifying that we have, you know, nuclear war saber rattling now. It is so dangerous and insane. But but what it is to threaten, you know, hellfire type responses and what it is to, you know, protect your nation. In Israel, historically, up until the peace process failed, up until we see everybody dragging their feet and Abbas making no progress and Netanyahu making no progress, I really got interested in this notion that every leader that they understood when they, you know, took over, that their job was to ensure a future for the nation. And that's why the general character is so important to me. So, you know, someone even like Sharon, who Again, a, a violent man with a terrible history who I am, you know, no supporter of. And even when he took over and even with all his, you know, back to saber rattling, I mean, him bringing, which is, you know, I have the general doing the book, but, you know, taking, going up with a giant security detail onto the Temple Mount, which is, you know, one of the sparks of Intifada too, though there are you know, many reasons and that truly doesn't uh, hold it. But that he is the one that pulled out of Gaza that he's the one who gave up territory is so gigantic to me. You know, this notion that I really feel, at least in my imagined general, that the greatest warriors and the most violent men and people who truly see the other side as just a pure enemy would have to recognize in the case of Israel that peace is the only option, that's it's a strategic option. And it was that pivot that I was really interested in. Well, one of the things you, you mentioned in there um, and, and a few times is the the notion of dying for peace without taking in the details of the Middle East and trying to look at this conundrum that's thousands of years old, it seems like an oxymoron. Is it inevitable? You know, these are the personal elements of the book, you know, things that I've just thought about for so long and lived through, which is, I always say that, that I wasn't afraid when I lived in Israel, even when it was super violent, even when my neighborhood was blowing up, it wasn't looking to die. And, you know, 
uh, definitely wanted you know to live on and have a future, but I was sort of ready to die. Like I understood that if we're making peace, you know, it comes at a cost. That there are enemies of peace, and if you're part of something larger, you know, that's what you know that's what sa- you know human that's what sacrifice is for. You know, not suicide, but this idea like if you're fighting for something, you know, you're making a contribution, and there may be a terrible cost. And it's really only when I saw you know, and here we are, as I said, you know much further away from peace than we were 20 years ago. You know, I feel like I only got afraid when I saw, oh, you know, Arafat's, we're not going to finish this and Sharon's not going to finish it. And like, you know, in a sense, however much anybody's trying, I felt like, oh, this is now senseless. Like now people are dying for nothing because the peace isn't coming. But I really thought about that idea, like what are we, and that's an exploration of the book, like what are you willing to die for? And back to Prisoner Z, you know, one of the very main characters of this book, uh, you know, a guy much like myself, like a Long Island sort of a Long Island Jewish boy who is such an idealist that he moves to Israel and such an idealist that he joins the Mossad, their secret service. That's that's the pressure I want on this book and what it is for him to so empathize that he, you know, sacrifices his life in, in the biggest way, which is to, you know, become a, a traitor and find himself in prison. You know, that is to, you know, maybe even worse than death in some ways is to, to, to live in disappeared, you know, a, a sort of half death in, in a way. And yeah, that, that was the notion that I was really exploring also is what are we willing to sacrifice for? And I think about that all the time in the States. We're going to have all these crazy laws and, you know, take people's rights away and, and dehumanize people, you know, as if it's a protection, but we're willing to, I don't know what, you know, is it 30,000 people die a year? because of our gun laws, like I'm not willing to die because, you know, because people have an open carry, you know, sword law in Texas. Now that's, I don't want my head lopped off for that. So this idea, you know, where you have to decide what's worth sacrificing your life for. And I think for democracy, a lot more than some other things that we're willing to die for. Do you think there's a psychological difference between an American coming over and having the experience that prisoner Z had, meaning, you know, he went with this ideology and he was able to cross this boundary of empathy and compassion and and actually do something illegal to aid the Palestinians to find some sense of equality in his mind. Do you think that's different than what an, as someone born in Israel would do? I just really wanted to look at empathy. What would take an idealist who's, you know, obviously has empathy for his or her own cause to such an extreme degree to join the secret service of their adopted nation. And I'm thinking, what would it take feeling-wise for him to flip because he understands the Palestinian side? You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Nathan Englander, author of the novel Dinner at the Center of the Earth. Sounds like maybe when you lived in Israel, that was your real bar mitzvah, your real passage to manhood, maybe. You know what? We're getting fully psychological here, but it was my my junior year abroad. I mean, nobody, I say my people came to this country and stayed. I think I was the first person, you know, on one side of the family to get a passport and go abroad in literally generations. Honestly, my roommate, he's still there, my buddy Joel, he's the one who dragged me abroad for junior year. And I think it was that moment I had been so sheltered in my religious New York life. And it's funny to have this awakening in uh, a pretty Jewish town and a pretty religious town that is Jerusalem. But yes, the moment I got off the plane there was my first 
radical sense of freedom where I got to feel like, who am I? Wow, I hadn't thought about it this way, but for me, you're maybe really getting to the core of that link to the novel. It's like when you go to the high school that's wrong for you and then you, you know, these moments of rebirth or where you find out like, oh, this is who I am. Like for me, that first extraordinary, it was gigantic for me and I really felt it when I got off the plane in Israel that first time, you know, for, for that year, I feel like it was the first time I got to think like, who am I really? To the point that I stopped being religious the first week there. You know, I really got to say, who do I want to be and who am I really? And it wasn't, uh, religious wasn't on the list. And I literally gave it up my first week in Israel. And I think maybe that's the point that you're saying, which is, but I don't know if getting not religious counts as a bar mitzvah. It might be a reverse bar mitzvah. So let's talk about the, the title, Dinner at the Center of the Earth. You know, part of the circular nature of this book and my own discovery as I built out the plot. And uh, as a tick former, I'm like, oh, I seem to have written it. one element is a political thriller. And then it's this, you know, I don't know if you call it magic realism or whatever kind of metaphysical history of Israel through the general and his coma. And then it ends up being a love story. And then it ends up really being, you know, we find ourselves in the allegory for the book. But yeah, that dinner at the center of the earth, you know, this is my exploration. It's where it crosses you know, into sort of a different world and my exploration of place and sort of my exploration of peace or, or, or what it's going to take for both sides to come together, which is I feel like, you know, America has been working on this peace process. I mean, Clinton, so many presidents have put so much weight behind trying to be the one behind this and Egypt and so many countries you know, working with Israel and Palestine to try and make it happen. And so many people on both sides who truly want it to happen. And I think one thing from the outside, as an outsider who moved there, that it took me a long time to discover is everyone treats it like the two sides are on a spectrum. The, the best example is, sadly, you know, how story changes while you're writing it, which is America right now. We've become so torn apart. I mean, this country is being torn in half. It's heartbreaking. And the reason, one of the central reason that's that's that that's possible is because we have separate realities we didn't used to have separate realities in america you know you could i could be a republican and you could be a democrat or vice versa and we'd say like oh i don't agree with your school voucher policy or i don't agree with your you know position on medicaid you know it would be two people of the same country of the same nation discussing something and maybe you know having an extraordinary disagreement about it, but we were sharing a reality. You know, now it's become this radical thing where, you know, where literally you can look at a photograph of, you know, Trump's inauguration and see, you know, huge swaths where there are no people and compare it to, you know, a previous inauguration and see those spots filled with people. And then someone will swear on their life that there are more people in the photograph with less people. I mean, that to me in terms of shattered realities, it is so, you know, and that is the least dangerous example that I can come up with and least explosive. And by the way, I'm sure some of your listeners being like, what is he even intimating? Because there were more people in the photo with less people. That's what I'm saying. There is, back to an example I already used, two plus two equals, you know, four. Like that's it. There's no discussion of two plus two equals four. But we're starting to make those points discussable. And you know, Israel is, a, for me, a precursor or a canary in the coal mine example of that of Israel and Palestine. Already I'm making a political statement when I say Israel instead of Palestine to someone listening, you know, wherever my heart is. It shows a point of view. So what I'm saying to you living there, when people would say, oh, 
there's a disagreement or there's a radical disagreement or there's so much hatred on the two sides who are on the same plane or on the same spectrum. What I'm saying to you is it's not even the same reality. And it took me so long to discover that where I'm telling you about my personal history. I lived in Jerusalem, which had a great holy site in it, which was the Temple Mount. And my Palestinian neighbor in Jerusalem didn't live in Jerusalem. She lives in Il-Quds, and her holy site is Haram el-Sharif. You know what I'm saying? So this idea that you can literally, that we can be inhabiting the same city but be in different cities, that we can bo both go to the same holy site and be at a different holy site is so gigantic. And I was looking for a place to bring this whole book together that was neither place, like a space to meet that was a, you know, no man's land, which again is already gendered, back to everything taking aside, no person's land. But nonetheless, that I wanted to find this space where the two sides could come together, you know, and share a moment of uh, sort of dark hope. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Nathan Englander, author of the novel Dinner at the Center of the Earth. Is there anything about writing that is like prayer? Oh, uh, that is really easy for me. And it's a chicken and the egg question. I don't know what about background, you know, uh, if all that praying that I did you know, uh, shape my brain completely, or if I had a brain that sort of takes to that kind of rhythm. But I'm really interested whether it's prayer or exercise, you know, whether that's, you know, or exercise that sometimes has sort of a spiritual component like yoga or archery. But I'm interested in sacred time and sacred space. But the writing itself is what keeps me sane. And I think that's tied to prayer, which is it's this everyday thing that you do. It's this out of body thing that you do, you know, where, where it, you know, where it's not on the calendar, you know what I'm saying? It's just, there's these moments every day where you transcend self, the, the part you read, what makes the, the book that you get to read, like with the paragraph I read you is not when I'm trying to write a story. It's these moments outside of consciousness where you fall away and there's only the work. And that to me is where prayer and writing come together, is that everyday continuum. It's something that needs to be done, that I need to do. And if, you're, if I'm consciously dedicated to it, my job as a person is to write, or my job as a religious person was to pray. If you're really dedicated, then maybe you are gifted with these moments of, you know, these free moments outside of self, which I think are, you know, just a blessing on both sides. Can you read something that influenced you as a writer, either for this book or just in general? You know, Marilyn Robinson's influence on me as teacher has really had such a huge influence on this book specifically, as I said, in the linear versus the circles and how my head works. She really just raised me up as a writer. But uh, I don't want to give short shrift to how much her own beautiful sentences, you know, uh, how her own work also had its own huge effect separate from the person herself. So yeah, I think I'll just read the, the start of Gilead. I told you last night that I might be gone sometime, and you said, where? And I said, to be with the good Lord, and you said, why? And I said, because I'm old, and you said, I don't think you're old. And you put your hand in my hand, and you said, you aren't very old, as if that settled it. I told you you might have a very different life from mine, and from the life you've had with me, and that would be a wonderful thing. There are many ways to live a good life. And you said, 
mama already told me that. And then you said, don't laugh because you thought I was laughing at you. You reached up and put your fingers on my lips and gave me that look I never in my life saw on any other face besides your mother's. It's a kind of furious pride, very passionate and stern. I'm always a little surprised to find my eyebrows on singe after I've suffered one of those looks. I will miss them. There's the start of Gilead. Do you want to say anything else about why you chose this? You know, back to the sentence, to the sentence level. If you like look at the punctuation of how that, you know, paragraph is built, it, you know, it just flows and flows. But I, uh, I'm going to make the weirdest or not the weirdest connection. But I remember getting, having the good fortune a million years ago, I haven't been there forever, but getting to see like the Picasso magazine, uh, Picasso museum. And I, I think it's in Barcelona. Yeah. But, uh, it was a Barcelona trip, but, um, Oh, but just to see his early work where you have to have, if you want to get to cubism, you don't start at cubism. You need like complete and total control. And then you can, you know, get out your screwdriver and start breaking our notion of art apart. And I feel like, you know, it really was such a giant lesson and you see it all over her work. Like to build a paragraph like that, you just need such control of, you know, every, like just such, she has such extraordinary control of the sentence. Marilyn can have like a 10 page sentence and you will be able to follow along. But that sentence, it's nice to hear it read, but just to look at that paragraph, it's so beautiful to me how it's built, you know, the, the, you know, the twists and turns of that. So, you know, maybe to a different kind of reader, to me, that's like action prose. That's, that's wild times I just had reading that crazy paragraph. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Nathan Englander, author of the novel Dinner at the Center of the Earth. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it changed from the first draft or was tricky or you just like it? Oh, I know exactly what I want to read. And it's clear to me why, which is, you know, a book that I wanted to write really for, you know, almost 20 years, like a book that I was obsessed with finding a way into and have a million different starts for and other iterations which aren't this book, but are this book, the way we find, you know, our way into a text. And it was, I can, it's, it's so physical, almost the memory. I just can remember the moment where I was sitting at my desk and wrote the first version of these paragraphs that just came out of nowhere where, you know, two characters were born or three in this paragraph. Uh, and just where, where you're just like, oh, you know, here is my world. Like I knew my novel was started at the moment I typed the rough draft of these paragraphs. Uh, 2014 Hospital near Tel Aviv. Let us first listen to the sounds of the fat man endlessly dying. The beep and whir, the hiss pump hiss of it. An adjustment is made, a suctioning and clearing. And then we are back to the endless electrical rhythm of the machines. Ruthie smooths at his blanket, tucking a corner when the night nurse arrives. I don't like it, Ruthie says. I don't like the way he looks. The way he looks? The night nurse raises an eyebrow, stepping back to consider him. This big bear of a man in his big mechanical hospital bed. She cannot see a lick of difference from the way he looked last night or the night before that or in the weeks or months or years that preceded. Did you want to say anything else about this? All I would say is the randomness. If you read any two paragraphs together, I'm like, both have eyebrows. You know, I, I just like the way work communicates. So uh, if, if I wove myself with Gilead for a moment, that, that was a pleasure. But no, yeah, just, just even reading it now, as I said, 
you know, there's my experience of the book, which is inside out versus outside in, which is the journey you want the reader to make until, as I said, until it's one shared brain between us. But yeah, that, that again was just for me, as I said, it's not ice climbing, but in terms of writerly excitement, that was just a gigantic moment when I suddenly heard Ruthie and the general and the night nurse, you know, just saw them all in this room and said, oh, here, here's my world. Where do you write? That changes, but um, lately it's been really wonderful uh, to use a space. My buddy, the novelist John Ray, has a room and he's let me take over that room. So it's been really nice lately to you know take, I, I was really worried about walking a couple of neighborhoods, but it's been really nice creatively to take the dog and walk a half hour and work in someone else's house for a part of the day has been really wonderful. And then for this book, for my wife's uh, PhD research, we had spent most of last year living in uh, the wonderful city of Zomba, Malawi. And I did a massive rewrite. I took the rough draft of this book and just worked endlessly in that town. So, you know, being in such a radically different space from my own experience while imagining, you know, a novel space and accessing memories from my, you know, own Jerusalem and Israeli, you know, history, all of that together made for a really nice place to uh, execute this novel. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Walking the dog is a hugely calming thing for me, taking her out and uh, and back to the cult of CrossFit. Yeah, my wife and I, uh, we like to exercise together. But I have to say, uh, again, it's the only addiction that's easy to break. You know, I feel like if somebody has, you know, and God bless you, like, you know, overcome a heroin addiction, you may have to fight that for the rest of your life. But I feel like the gym, once you're, once you're, out of gym mode, you're like, oh, I don't have time. It's impossible to get back. But when, you, when you're getting your endorphins and, and connected right now, I really need my, you know, we go to our local CrossFit South Brooklyn, a shout out to them. But uh, yeah, that's really an excellent part of my week. And, you know, especially that it's something my wife likes to do. We go there and that really sets us both up for the day. So if that's not too uh, health minded, I have to say it's walking the dog and, and hitting the gym are the two brain clearers for me. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My wife, uh, she is not a fiction writer, but which is, uh, as I said, I know a lot of fiction writing couples, everything has its own differences, but uh, man, can she read? And she's a great reader. And then the uh, short story writer, uh, Lauren Holmes, uh, who's you interviewed about her wonderful collection, Barbara the Slut, but Lauren, who was my student, and then, you know, our cat sitter, and then, you know, is now just part of the family, but she is an extraordinary reader. So yeah, uh, Rachel and Lauren, and then obviously I'm very bad at boundaries, so I was going to call them professional, but they are equally tortured. Yes, my agent Nicole, my editor Jordan. I have a. I'm I'm very thankful for my support across the board. How have you dealt with rejection? Not well. Does anyone do it well? <laughs> I'm a, I'm a delicate flower. I take to my fainting couch for the day, and I go on from there. No, uh, I think it's very uh, the of the nice things about getting older is it takes a while to see that the writing life really is a writing life. And, and, and that's been very helpful when you, when you look at the big pictures, you don't understand like, cause you don't see it when you, you know, get a magazine with a story in it, you see the story that's in it and you don't understand that every writer is, you know, having some piece rejected or something going wrong 
it, it really is a good life lesson to try and always see the big picture. Like, you know, your notion of perfection, like we're human beings. And I say like perfection is imperfect. Like something is not going to go, you know, as, as planned. And, uh, and, and I think as I, as I say, like seeing the, you know, your first book for me, there was almost a decade between my first and second book. So I say, I say the reason I worked so hard on that novel and stuck with it and powered through, you know, as challenging as building this Argentine world was for me in that, in that second book is because it was so hard that for almost a decade, people would say to me, what do you do for a living? And I'd have to say, I write book. But there is really something to the period. It, it's so much, it's so differently loaded when your whole identity as a writer is around a single work. And as you see the continuum in life is, is, is you become more comfortable. You just can't control you know, what's gonna happen when you put a book in the world, which is a nice question for you to ask because on launch day, it, it's really good to try and be Zen and recognize, you know, my my job is done. Like I had to write this book. I stand by this book. Like this book is my whole heart and soul. And what happens with it in the world? You know, that's a, that's more. I'm talking to you as me, the writer, and as me, the writer, my job is to write books. What happens? You know, rejection and acceptance and support. That's all for you know poor Nathan, regular me, who you know has to. That, that's his business. And what is your favorite word? I'm kind of tortured by having to come up with, you know, a favorite story or a favorite thing. But I, I was thinking, yeah, there's a form of the word in this book. Um, uh, and I was like, oh, you know what? I, embarrassingly enough, I'm really was happy for that word to find its way into this book in whatever form. But uh, yeah, calipigeon, which is, I like that English is such a rich language. And that's, you know, having a well-shaped buttock. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Nathan Englander, author of the novel Dinner at the Center of the Earth. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.